Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Today is a throwback to 2017 when we had Uriel Eisen and Maggie Burke on the show, who, by the way, for this trip, made their own bikepacking bags, made their own tent uh, to do this amazing trip to the Andes. And there were a lot of unknowns. They didn't know how to speak Spanish very well. There was, uh, they hadn't done a ton of high altitude uh, adventures or activities at all. And of course, the terrain is just absolutely brutally rugged at times. So it was obviously a huge challenge for them at times. Just, just, crazy, crazy idea. Um, But the amazing and wonderful, gracious people they met along the way, as well as the grandeur of the Andes made this a heck of a trip of a lifetime. So I know we've had a ton of bikepacking and bike touring on lately. That's just kind of, you know, how it's been going. I haven't necessarily been doing more of that lately, uh, which a lot of people think maybe the show reflects what I'm actually into at the time, but uh, it's just aligned and these are just great adventures. So uh, this one, goes back to 2017 like i said kurt was hosting and uh let's go ahead and jump in hi friends thank you again for listening to the adventure sports podcast kurt here i have maggie burke and uriel eisen on the phone and maggie and uriel did something really kind of fun and innovative i'm excited to hear about they decided to make a lot of their own gear and go down to the Ecuadorian Andes and do some bikepacking. So they made their own bikepacking bags and tent, and they went down there to test it. Didn't really know Spanish, didn't have a lot of plans, just kind of went out there and and they just kind of winged it. So welcome to the program, Maggie and Uriel. We want to find out about this crazy trip. Awesome. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for inviting us on. Yeah, thank you very much. You bet. So I guess... Let's get a little I, backstory before we dive into the trip so people know who we're talking to. So, uh, Uriel, you're in Pittsburgh. Who is Uriel? Yeah, so I um here in Pittsburgh. I've been working on a startup for the past three years, sort of tied into the startup community here. Um, I guess in a nutshell, I'm sort of a compulsive builder and maker. Um, I sleep under my workbench. <laughs> and I mean, you know, it's big enough for a bed, so there's space under there. But um, I have a sewing studio and uh, sort of machining, machining stuff. And I'm right now. I'm building a cargo bike. Um, just always sort of building stuff, trying stuff, planning new adventures, and uh, trying things. Very, very cool. Maggie, what about you? Um, well, I'm living in New York now, working in theater here. Uh, I, am from Seattle, which is sort of where I learned about how, about doing things in the outdoors, uh, and like fell in love with camping and, and biking and things like that. Uh, and I went to school with Uriel in Pittsburgh. Um, so we still try to go on as many trips as we can together, uh, sort of around my work schedule. Very fun. So you met in Pittsburgh. How did you meet? Uh, well, we went to school together, uh, and kind of had similar majors and similar friends um, and then started dating toward the end of our junior year of college. Okay. Maggie's roommate was uh, in industrial design with me in my class. So we hung out a lot and yeah, had a lot of the same friends and um, actually sort of surprisingly didn't meet till sort of the end of junior year. But wow. um once we did, I guess, it was, it, I think what sort of brought us together at the beginning was just um, both of us enjoyed exploring and just going out in the city and uh, 
there are a lot of really cool parks in Pittsburgh and sort of abandoned buildings and various things. And it's sometimes hard to find people who are interested in doing that kind of stuff and just going out and uh, maybe being a little uncomfortable or muddy or whatever. And uh, so we, we did a lot of that stuff together and I guess haven't really stopped. So now you guys are in two different cities doing two different things. How long has it been since you were back at the university? I guess a, a little over two years now. Two years. So Maggie, what took you to New York? I came here uh, for theater work because it's kind of the place to be to work in theater. Um, I do sound design, so I do a lot of, I do like assistant designing. Um, I worked on my first Broadway show as an assistant last year. Worked on the show Amelie. So whose idea was it to head down to Ecuador? Uh, I guess it was sort of mine. I think we were talking about going on a bikepacking trip together. We'd gone on a few smaller trips, one in uh, Georgia on the trans, a section of the Trans-North Georgia Trail. Um, and we were kind of looking at something a little bit further away. I really like South and Central America. I've traveled to Belize and Costa Rica before. And really like the people and the language. And uh, yeah, so it was just sort of a good fit. Like there was a lot of information about the route on bikepacking.com. Um, and we were able to get all of the GPS information from this one route so that we could pretty easily follow a track. All right, on. So bikepacking.com. Yeah, I guess we ended up. Uh, yeah. Yeah, bikepacking.com is a great resource. We ended up sort of piecing together. Um, there are like three alternate trails through the Andes, and so some of them are more on-road, some of them are more single track and sort of uh, back country, and so we sort of pieced it together. We went in right at the end of the rainy season, and so there were some sections that were incredibly muddy. Uh, we were fortunate enough to be in contact with uh, the Dahmer brothers, who pioneered the route through the mountains, um, and so we got a lot of really useful information about you know which parts of the trail they recommended and which parts maybe to avoid at that time of year um and actually we uh reached out to them and ended up starting our trip there at their farm which is right at the beginning of the trail so we got some extra maps and yeah some guidance and actually some very tasty uh vegetables as well <laughs> right on so describe the route to us if you would you said you kind of piece something together here. What, what are the details? Uh, so I did most of the route planning, uh, and I kind of have the GPS and am a little bit of a nerd for maps, maps. and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we pieced together two, um, two routes called the, the Dirt Road and then the Off-Road TEMBR, which stands for Trans-Ecuadorian Mountain Bike Route, which is the route that these Dahmer brothers uh, kind of pioneered. Um, through years of like living and biking in Ecuador. Um, so we, st we ended up starting in Quito, which is the capital of Ecuador, and which itself is already at, I think, 8,000 feet above sea level, wow. uh, which is typically the altitude at which one starts to experience like altitude problems. Uh, and then we biked south from there toward Cotopaxi National Park, um, which is this big cone-like volcano that you may have seen pictures of at some point or another, uh, and then continued south from there and west a little bit into some other mountains um, to a volcano that's been filled in with water and turned like 
is now a big lake called Kilotoa. Um, and then our, our furthest southward point was Angamarca, which is a little uh, old colonial town, like in the, right in the Andes. Um, the whole time we were pretty much 7,000 feet and above. I think we got as high as like 15,000 feet uh, at one point through Cotopaxi. Um, and then on the way back, we ended up taking some of the buses that connect smaller towns in Ecuador to the bigger to the bigger cities. They have lots of cargo space underneath that we could stash our bikes in. Uh, and then we kind of made our way back to Quito on the buses and spent a few days staying in hostels. Wow, that sounds like a magnificent trip. Really, really cool. How long did it take? It took... Um, I think we were there for 14 days and ended up spending eight or nine on bikes. Uh, yeah, like the first... I think 10 or 11 days we spent oh, on bikes. Yeah. And then three, four days in cities. Yeah. Yeah. And we ended up uh, taking, um, I have a Surly Pugsley and Maggie rides a Surly ECR. So uh, she had 29 plus tires and I have the, you know, four inch tires. And the terrain um, was sort of hillocks with standing water and big tufts of grass. And uh, we ended up packing a lot of um, replacement parts because on some of our previous trips, um, I, I break my bike a lot. So. That's really why. <laughs> wow. So I ended up bringing um, some, you know, we each had a spare tire and we had tubes um, I had a spare freewheel body, which is like the part that clicks in the rear hub because um, I've broken two of them previously. Um, and so we had like 70 pound bikes or so. And so it was it was really, really rough um, getting through. I mean, also magnificent, but we were up in the clouds for a lot of it. So it was very damp. Um, and just the amount of water was kind of staggering, um, as well as just the size of the mountains i mean i grew up on the east coast so what we call mountains uh some don't think qualify pale in comparison to (laughs) real mountains (laughs) so i have been you know to the west coast and seen some of that but i mean there was one instance where we were riding along and it really looked like this river was flowing uphill because we had been climbing gaining altitude for like three days and the whole landscape was just pitched up into the uh, out to the horizon and so your brain kind of starts just uh normalizing that as flat and so this river which really was flowing downhill just something about the lay of the land made it look like it was going uphill i mean i i you know haven't climbed that much on a bike in, in terms, you know, we, we were actually just climbing for like three days mm. straight with, you know, small little descents in there, but mostly just climbing. And then also, I mean, on the tail end of that, the descents were unbelievable. I mean, hours long of steep, hard descents um, through really, really beautiful, beautiful spots. Well, how much of the ride would you call single track, twin track or regular road? Not not too much of it was single track in like the Western sense of it, where like it's it's 
bikeable and like just a single track, like through the woods. A lot of what we biked on through Cotopaxi was uh, sort of routes where cowboys drive cattle and travel through the mountains to get between cities. Uh, and then some of the tracks, uh, especially going into Angamarca, which is a, a very old town, are these old Inca trails where, uh, like, back when uh, the Incans lived in uh, the Andes, they would travel between cities on foot. Um, so a lot of it is is those leftover trails. And they're often wider. Uh, livestock are still driven on them, which means that you get uh, cow poop. Yeah. All over your bikes. Because <laughs> they watch out and... for the landmines. They're everywhere. Uh, <laughs> okay. It wasn't even uh, discrete piles. It was, it was just like mud mixed with uh, <laughs> manure of various types. And some of it was really messy. And then the part, uh, there were some parts up in the grasslands that were more typical sort of narrow paths. But there, because of the terrain, they end up becoming these trenches into the ground. And so some of them are like, you know, 18 inches deep and not much wider than uh, than the bike to the point where we would sort of sit on the seat with our feet up on the grass on either side of it and just try to maneuver the bike through without catching the pedals or like tearing off your derailleur or something. Goodness. Uh, yeah, but there wasn't, I don't think we saw any like, uh, you know, single track in the, you know, with berms or <laughs> anything that was built for biking. Right. For sure. Yeah, actually, we would, we would go through these, these small towns and in our very broken Spanish, they'd be like, where are you going? Uh, we were like, we're all going to this town. And they'd be like, Oh, don't go this way. Like, this is not the way go back. Go that way. Yeah. They saw us on bikes. And I think like, first of all, they thought they were motorcycles uh, because they hadn't seen bikes with such large tires. Right. Uh, so we'd often get asked like, es moto? We'd be like, no, it's not a motorcycle. Um, and then they say loco after that right (laughs) probably once we've left yeah yeah so we finally learned to ask about you know is we're trying to go the scenic route because sometimes we were trying to find out if there was in fact a trail the way we were going but at the beginning they'd say no no there's no trail that way because they just do not associate bikes with that kind of stuff right um and so, to, yeah, so we finally sort of figured out how to ask in a way that they would actually give us some information on it. You're like, yeah, there is technically a trail that direction. <laughs> if you want. We yep. expect to see you coming back in a couple of hours. But... <laughs> yeah, they think you're just going to be pushing the bike the whole way. and Which they, so they were, were often necessarily right about. wrong, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's amazing. So what about some stats? How, what kind of distance did you do? So the distances we did actually weren't crazy. Um, disclaimer, like before going on this trip, I I just come off of a big show and I like wasn't biking or working out much at all. Uh, so we both kind of went without really being in super good shape and kind of got into shape while we were going. And we ended up only doing, I guess, between around 20 miles a day. Yeah. Yeah, about okay. 20 miles, a little over 20 a day. Okay, so um, this is what I envisioned so far. You're pushing your bike through muddy cow manure, slipping with your feet, and at sometimes the bikes are in deep gullies, so you're actually kind of pushing the bikes along on the grass on the sides of the trail, and you're still doing 20 miles. That's pretty good. Yeah, so we did around 20 miles a day, and some of the first few days when we were going up, the elevation gain would be like uh, – 2,500 to 3,000 feet a day. Right. Uh, over 20 miles. So. Wow. 
So yeah. an amazing trip. Um, we could go into a lot more detail, and I want to, but I just kind of want to rewind a little bit and say, did it turn out the way you expected? Are you glad you did it? You know, that sort of thing. Oh, um, in terms of expectations, I, I had looked at the pictures, and it looked absolutely beautiful. Um, it was absolutely beautiful. Um, so that definitely lived up to what I was expecting. I, I mean, pictures, you really can't capture the scale in a photo, or at least I can't. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was mind-blowing um, to be up in those mountains and in the clouds and just the, I, I don't know, the grandeur and how steep and rugged the terrain was. Um, and then in terms of the trip, I mean, I had a great time. It was a ton of fun, uh, definitely an adventure. Um, as I mentioned, we've done a couple trips before and uh, Maggie normally figures out the routes and um, they're typically not uh, incredibly rideable. <laughs> so a lot of pushing bikes up very steep hills um, and like crossing a bunch of rivers and stuff. So it was, it was pretty typical in that regard. Um, challenge is is something that we both definitely enjoy um i don't think that the sometimes non-bikeable nature of it um really damaged the trip in any way for us i think that we did both have higher expectations about how much we would want to bike and we really enjoyed like pushing and slogging through the mountains but toward the tail end of the trip we also stayed in some hostels in latacunga and then in quito uh, and explored those cities a little bit and ate some really good food and saw some of the ancient cathedrals and stuff there. And that was also a totally worthwhile part of the trip. So I think, like, in retrospect, I don't know that I need to, like, bike the entire time. And I think that, like, giving yourself license to also, like, do some of the touristy things can make the trip super fun as oh, well. Yeah. Well, that sounds really, really cool. Here's a question for you. I know that at some point... It would have been easier to say, okay, if I didn't have a bike and I had a backpack, this would actually be an easier day. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. There's a point at which yeah. the bike's an encumbrance instead of helping. And then there are other times where it's like, yeah, I am so glad we're on these bikes. But where did this fall on this trip? I think I'm always happy I have the bikes. Uh, we, we went on a backpacking trip in the uh, Olympics, actually pretty recently. Um, and it was fun, but the whole time we were both kind of losing <laughs> our bikes a little bit. Yep. <laughs> uh, so I think that there's something that's that's fun about biking really slow and about like the challenge of going through all the little puddles and like making it uphill. And then once you're at the top, like rolling down the other side is, is super awesome. <laughs> so that Yeah. Makes sense I, I'd agree. I, I also think, um, I mean, there were definitely times when it was, um, you know, pushing our bikes. There was one pass we went through particularly where, um, the last, couple hundred yards um there just was no way one person could push a bike up it i mean you could barely walk up it it was so steep um and so we ended up going two to a bike to get it up to this up to the top of this mountain pass at fifteen thousand feet um and i i guess yeah i think both of us are really enjoy the challenge and just seeing you know what you can actually do um and i know for me just 
it's a great sort of uh break from the everyday stresses of life you know you're only really thinking about one thing when you're trying to drag your bike through a river or you know wherever you are um so there was no point where i was like you know i wish i just had a backpack and not a bike um and then i i think uh you know maggie and i have sort of talked a lot about this but uh seeing seeing a country by bike just seems like a pretty optimal speed um, you can cover a good amount of distance. Um, you can cover a lot more than 20 miles a day if you're in even moderate <laughs> <yes>. shape. <laughs> well, also, I, I think the elevation was tough. We were sort of acclimating to that. Um, and the terrain, yeah, it was definitely hard. But just to give some perspective, um, other people who bike the trail, I think, do around 50 miles a day. So pack lighter next time and maybe be in a bit better shape. <laughs> we had a great time, so I don't know. Yeah. Not go if I wasn't in shape. Well, that that sounds like a really fun adventure, like you said. And I've often wondered about that because I totally get the whole idea of bike packing, but I know at times the bike, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a piece of machinery that you have to drag over stuff. And then you get the advantage, of course, when you can actually roll again and pedal. <laughs> That's fun. But I was just curious what your perspective was. So in your perspective, even as rough as the trail got, the bikes were still worth it. Yeah, and I think that's partly just because both of us really love biking a lot and, like, get a lot of joy out of facing obstacles that way rather than on foot. But to each his own. I mean, we also saw a good number of hikers, uh, and they seemed like they were having a great time. So, Well, I'm kind of curious. You said your bikes were somewhere around 70 pounds. I mean, that's that's a heavy setup. And if you had that minus the weight of the bike, right, if you had all of that gear on your back, you're going to have a fairly heavy pack. I guess what I'm, what I'm wondering here, is it easier to have all that weight on the bike on wheels that you can push, or would it have actually been easier to have it in the pack? Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess it wouldn't actually be a super heavy pack because we were packed pretty light. If you got rid of the bikes, you could also get rid of all of our gear that was bike related. So spare tubes, spare tires, and those fat tires are kind of heavy, um, you know, spare disc brake pads, spare chain, uh, multi-tool, all that stuff. So um, I'm not really sure. I guess I never really evaluated it as a, you know, should I bring a bike or uh, go with a backpack? I think we definitely planned the trip as a you know, we went into it saying, where should we go next to go bikepacking? Right. And it wasn't really about, you know, picking an appropriate path, I guess, though we did find it on bikepacking.com. So, um, you know, it, it is clearly, it was pioneered with a bike. Um, but just, you know, you spend a couple days pedaling up a mountain and I, I really enjoy technical climbs on a bike and, uh, or even if you're dragging it up, just, you know, pushing your bike through, uh, um, through cow poop in a gully, um, you eventually get to the top and you get to do some really fun, um, fast descents. So I think I was just reading through my journal from the trip last night and, uh, one of our descents, uh, after that mountain pass, I mentioned, um, we were going down, we were drenched cause it was raining all of our gear was wet. We had been going through rivers and puddles the whole day. Um, and then we came over that pass and like, I don't know, half an hour after starting our descent, 
the sun came out and I wrote in my journal that it was one of the best days of my year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really was, I mean, just, you know, we were rolling downhill for a couple hours with the sun. We took our shoes off and hung them on the bars to dry and it was just beautiful. And you get to sort of weave, you know, weave through the, the obstacles and find creative things to jump off of and stuff. So, you know, that was, it, that was just such a highlight that any amount of dragging um, to me is worth it. And I also enjoy the dragging part and that challenge. Yeah, that's cool. I, I don't want to belabor the point. I wasn't trying to actually say would it be easier to backpack so much as just to get a comparison for people that are interested. I mean, the reality is we live in a world where most big adventures have been done. And what we're finding on the show is a lot of guests are finding new ways to do the same adventures all over again with a different mode of travel. For instance, biking to the South Pole. People are biking to the South Pole. Well, of course, it might be easier to cross-country ski that or dog sled it. But doing it on a bike is pretty novel. You know, that's new. So, and I think that's, that's really what it's all about is it's not always saying, well, I'm not, I can't be the first person, you know, to, to go from A to B but I can be the first person to go from A to B on a tricycle. And I know that Mm -hmm. might sound silly, but it's really not because people get a different experience out of putting different parameters on the trip. And so for you, it was about the biking. And I totally get that. I totally get that. Very cool. I think that's true. Um, In terms of someone evaluating a trip, I mean, I think being in the Andes is going to be beautiful and amazing no matter how you do it. Oh, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the Andes and Ecuador. So, uh, first of all, what was the weather like? You said it was rainy, but well, what are the temperatures and that sort of thing? Oh, geez, what were the temperatures? Um, it was probably around 50 or 60 most days. We found that the temperature was pretty seriously impacted by the elevation that we were at. Right. Um, so, as soon as we dropped to like around 8,000 feet, it suddenly got much, much warmer. Um, and then there were also suddenly bugs at that altitude. Um, cause there are no mosquitoes above 8,000 feet, which is the other like total bonus of hiking in the Andes. You don't have to deal with bugs like that. Um, also part of the reason we chose that is because neither of us had thought far enough ahead to get vaccines or anything. <laughs> um, but <laughs> above 8,000 feet, there are no mosquitoes to worry about. So we're like, all right, this is perfect. So no malaria. Um, yeah. And it we, we got pretty lucky with the weather, actually, because when we were going through Cotopaxi, it was definitely rainy, but the rain would kind of blow through and you could see it like blowing across the plains and kind of prepare for it a bit. And it was normally not raining or at least raining very hard when we set up our camp or took it down. There was one night when we woke up in the middle of the night and thought our tent had collapsed because it was hanging, almost touching our faces. Wow. Uh, but we discovered it had snowed in the night. Mm, wow. Uh, yeah. So that was, that was kind of exciting. Well, I want to get back to the gear thing in just a minute, but a, a couple of points, no mosquitoes above 8,000 feet because you're in an equatorial area, right? Cause they're mosquitoes all the <laughs> yeah. way up. If you're in a place where the cold weather mosquitoes are right. Um, Oh, yeah, I'm actually I not guess, sure about that. Yeah, I don't know either. That's what we were reading online, and we, we definitely saw a few mosquitoes there, but not many. Have you found uh, – I haven't been much at high altitudes, so I don't know. 
Well, sure. I was just saying that really for the listeners. In Colorado, you're going to have mosquitoes all the way to 14,000 feet. So don't think you can Good outclimb them. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, okay. because it's a, it's a different type of mosquito that's really made for the cold, right? Hmm. And so I guess your equatorial mosquitoes are more limited. But that's a neat thing. I never thought of that. So if you get to altitude in those places, you can get away from the bugs. That's really cool. Yeah, so actually because of that, we ended up... Um, so we made a lot of the gear and the tent was one of the pieces. Um, and we opted for just a pyramid tent without a bug net um, because of that. And it was, it was great. Uh, we, it, it was a, it's technically a four person tent, but um, it's very light. Um, and it gave us the ability at the end of the day, even if it was raining, set it up. It doesn't have a floor in it. Um, I mean, you can hang a floor in it, but just toss all your gear in there, get inside, out of the weather, and you can even cook in there. So that was great, um, be able to get out of the weather like that. And yeah, we only had one night down near 7,000 feet where we definitely did have some bugs and it might have been nice to have a net. So let describe this pyramid tin a little bit. Um, you made it yourselves. Is it a single pole in the middle style tent? Yep, single pole in the middle, and then just, yeah, big pyramid. It's like nine feet by nine feet at the base. Um, and, yeah, stands like 56 inches tall in the center, so there's a good amount of space inside. Very simple, robust design, so it's great in, the, in really high wind, which we definitely experienced. It's good for snow. Um, just because the sides are so steep, it sort of sheds all, that, uh, all the snow off, um, or down to the bottom at least. Um, yeah. And it packs down. I think it comes in at like, uh, two pounds or 2.2 pounds, something like that. I forget exactly what it was, but you know, my other tent, which is not a lightweight tent by, uh, by any means, um, is, uh, was five pounds. So we were like, all right, we, we got to do better than that, but didn't want to spend the money for, you know, these really lightweight tents. Um, and then also just uh, being able to get all of our gear in the tent was really nice. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so Ariel made like a bathtub floor for half of the tent. So we slept on just one side of the pole and then we were able to drag all of our stuff in the other side. Um, and in the morning, Ariel is an earlier riser than I am. So he would cook breakfast on the one side of the tent and give me coffee in bed. It oh, was awesome. That is too <laughs> nice. <laughs> Oh, that's the, that's the other advantage of that kind of tent. I like the idea that it could be that light and that large. I mean, that that doesn't add up to me because most tents that size weigh quite a bit more. What kind of material was it? Um, so this is actually kind of interesting. I don't know how into it uh, people want to get, but um, there's a big sort of uh, divide in the tent-making world between nylon and polyester. Um, nylon is stronger per ounce, but absorbs up to 40, per, I think it's up to 40% of its weight in water. Mm. Um, it's hydrophilic, whereas polyester is hydrophobic, um, but, it, but it's weaker per weight. So my thinking, we ended up going with a, I want to say 1.6 ounce um, polyester base fabric coated in silicone. Um, and the, so it's a little bit heavier than you'd, you'd normally use like a 1.1 ounce nylon but with uh the polyester i went slightly heavier with my thinking was just that you normally pack i mean my experience is if it's raining or you have a lot of condensation you're normally packing your tent wet right um and so if you do that even twice and you gain whatever even 20 percent weight just due to the water 
um, then it's not really worth it. The other thing is polyester is much more UV resistant um, and it doesn't elongate with moisture. So even if you pitch a taut tent in the at night and then you wake up and the whole thing is kind of droopy, um, that's because the nylon elongates with water. So the, the polyester doesn't do that. So we found it, it worked really well. Um, it was very strong. We set it up into some really, really strong winds at one point to get out of the weather for lunch. Um, and yeah, yeah, very, uh, so far it works well. And the other nice thing about, um, about silicone coated fabrics is most tents, um, after a number of years, they start to delaminate and it's a polyurethane coating. And so it's no longer waterproof. You can't really fix it. And so you got to get yourself a new tent. Um, the reason I chose the silicone is you can just paint it with more silicone to seal it. And so it means you don't have to throw stuff away and you can actually just repair it, um, which to me, I really like. That sounds really, really cool. Very innovative. And I hadn't heard of the difference between nylon and the um, polyester. Yeah, polyester. I mean, it just depends who you talk to. Some people will say, absolutely don't use polyester. And some people will say, you know, <laughs> why would you use nylon? So, Well, what yeah. I like about the polyester is what you just said. You know, it's more UV resistant. And if it, if it starts to lose its waterproofness, you can just recoat it. I mean, that's really cool. Weighs slightly that's more, but if it's tougher... And it doesn't, you don't have to carry the water weight. You know, if it packs dry even when it's wet, then that makes a lot of sense, especially if you're in a, a humid or, or wet, rainy area. Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, the nylon's definitely tougher, which is why we went for a heavier fabric. But I think at the end of the day, when you weigh it with water in it, um, you know, you can shake out most of the water from this tent, whereas nylon actually absorbs it into the fiber. Um, nylon is okay. Uh, if you have silicone coated nylon, you can also recode it. So that's not really part of the debate, but, um, definitely I, I think the polyester was a nice way to go, especially cause you wake up in the morning after a whole night of rain and it's still taut and, uh, you know, not sagging down on your gear. So yeah, that's cool. Definitely happy with the choice. Well, Maggie, I want to ask you about the shape of the tent. Um, you know, a lot of the more dome tents, they're, they're kind of trying to approximate more headroom if you need to move around inside of the tent. When you have the pyramid shape, it gets narrow pretty quick at the top. So did you find that inconvenient or did you like it that way? Uh, I found that the tent has like such a big floor plan that you definitely do kind of lose some space around the sides because the sides get so low. But it's a great place to kind of like put your gear and then there's still plenty of space around the middle of the tent for you to like move around and exist. Um, so you definitely do lose space because of the shape, but it's also a bigger floor plan. So it kind of balances itself out that way. You know, most people that like to sleep in tents probably aren't too claustrophobic, but some people are claustrophobic. Would you say that this pyramid shaped tent helps with that or makes it a little bit more challenging? I'd say it could probably help with that. The other nice thing about at least the way that Uriel designed it was you're kind of able to lift to determine how high you want the bottom edges of the tent to be. So some nights when it was warmer, we knew we weren't going to get any rain uh, or be bothered by dogs. Um, we would like <laughs> lift the edges of the tent up a little higher just by pitching the guy lines like further out. Um, and you would end up with, 
you know, you could end up with like a foot if that was the way that you pitched it, like along the bottoms of the tent. Um, or you could pitch it so that it was super close to the ground. So the other nice part about the design is you're able to kind of give yourself more or less airspace, mm. depending on how you do it. Yeah, that's really cool. So Uriel, you mentioned cooking in the tent. Do you have a ventilation system at the top or is it just a matter of having the bottoms open enough for that? Yeah, so we normally cooked with the door slightly open. Um, and again, there's also just a big air gap all the way around. So there's really enough ventilation. Um, I didn't put an air vent on the top, though a lot of people do add it to the design. I just felt that uh, from what I read online, you know, pyramid tents have been done many times. I didn't do any new designs here, but it seems like even with the vents, you end up with a lot of condensation. Um, so I just figured it would be another place for it to fail. So I just skipped it and we would just open the door. And when you had all the rain and everything, I guess that eliminated the need for the rain fly and, uh, it worked. Um, it worked. There was one funny thing, which I'm, I'm definitely curious to know how other people deal with this, but we had some nights that started off warm and humid. And so we'd end up, but then it would cool down. So we'd end up with a lot of condensation inside the tent and then the first time it started raining in earnest at night with all that condensation, the rain would knock the condensation off the tent. So it would sort of drizzle inside the tent, <laughs> <laughs> which was definitely suboptimal. Um, so we would, we would wake up in the middle of the night and just kind of towel it off to try to keep it off our bags. But one really interesting thing that I um, didn't expect going in, being at such high altitude, uh, for me, anyway, being at higher altitude, everything dried out really fast. So even if I would bump the side of the tent with my sleeping bag and wipe all the condensation off, my bag would dry out by the morning. Um, my hiking boots, would we'd go through a river, and then if I kept wearing them, you know, five, six hours later, just because of the lower pressure, I think the evaporation just happened much faster, and everything dried out quite quickly. So it wasn't such a problem, but I could imagine rain inside the tent from the condensation would be kind of frustrating yeah, otherwise there's got to be an answer to that i'm curious so listeners if you have a, an idea for uriel then send it to us we'll make sure that he gets it go to adventure sports podcast and leave that comment so that we can solve that problem <laughs> yeah. you know uriel it reminds me of a night in a snow cave where the snow is heating up just enough to start to drip and it's just because <laughs> of a body heat you know it's plenty cold outside but the problem was there was a drip right over my head, and it was kind of making a stalactite, you know? And oh, I didn't matter how many times I reached up there and reshaped the snow to try to get the water to run down the side of the snow cave. It continued all night to drip in my face. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, well, I hope it wasn't that. like that for you guys. No. That's funny. So you also made your, uh, your bikepacking gear. Yeah, so... Um... I guess uh, I have a bunch of sewing machines and um, all the bikepacking gear is very reasonably priced considering the amount of time that goes into making it, but not, um, not the amount of money uh, we wanted to spend on it. And so getting into the sport, I mean, it's not outrageous, right? You're going to be able to buy the bags, especially if you get them used. They're not too bad, maybe a $100 a piece or something, but it's fun and cheaper to just make it and it really isn't too hard. So, um, I think we ended up making the panniers for the first bike trip we did together, like, uh, four or five years ago. No, three years ago. Um, 
I started making gear like four years ago. And um, yeah, so for this trip, we just made a bunch of bags based on all the issues we had had with bags for previous trips. And they ended up working out quite well. And they were lighter than a lot of the other offerings. And, you know, you can actually tailor it to exactly what you want, exactly what bike you have. Um, I made myself a camera bag that sits on the handlebars. That's one hand operation. So I can actually put it in and out while riding. And it kept the water out. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Wow. I know that with bikepacking, in the beginning, people were grabbing standard pannier kits and trying to go off-road with them. And they were they just couldn't hold hold up to the damaging conditions, you know. And so people started rigging more and more stuff that could handle the jarring effects of being off the smooth pavement. Um, Did you find any issues with that with your setup? So we both used kind of what is now sort of a a standard bikepacking setup. We had a a big handlebar bag uh, and then a frame bag. and a seat post bag, and then a few other smaller bags attached to like the front fork uh, and sort of rear sides of the bike. Uh, And then I also carried a small backpack with like some really light stuff in it, which is key not to have a heavy backpack. I was going to ask how much weight was on your back. Yeah, not, not a lot. I made that mistake. The first bike packing trip we took (laughs) Mm. and it was, it was bad. Yeah, it really throws your balance off, not to mention that it's grueling on the body. That's tough, you know. So it worked out then. Yeah, and a lot of the bags actually aren't too hard to make, especially like a handlebar bag can be as simple as just a a dry sack that you can buy at REI or somewhere else um, and then just like strap to the handlebars. You don't even, you don't really need anything more than that. Uh, And then the frame bag is also just like, two pieces of fabric that you cut out and run another piece of fabric around the outside. Um, so it's, it's, it is pretty easy to, to make your own stuff. I guess the, yeah, and even if it doesn't look great, it still works. Right. Well, the question <laughs> I always have is about the one that goes on the seat post, because it seems to me there's usually some sort of a structural member in there that helps it to stay up above that rear tire. And I think, well, that's where the abuse would come in. What keeps that from breaking? Um, yeah, so I think that's definitely the trickiest one to make, um, and have it work well. Um, and I think there are some interesting entries into the market. Um, like porcelain rocket has a, an actual sort of a frame that keeps it from swaying back and forth and keeps the whole thing up and it's chromoly steel. So you don't really have fatigue issues. Um, but there, uh, we use polyethylene, which is just it a very durable plastic. So it doesn't really break. Um, you can bend it, but it doesn't really break. So that's what they make whitewater kayaks out of and other stuff. Um, I actually had a friend who, uh, biked across China, still have that friend, but, um, and he used, um, some Ortley bags and they were off road a lot and they ended up breaking the buckles that connect to the bag. So I Mm. think a lot of the issues come in with the interface between the rigid structure and the, and the soft structure. Um, and so all these bags kind of strap on rather than, you know, trying to rely on like the eyelets or brazons, like a rack. And even a lot of the newer ones are pretty robust. So I think it definitely is less likely to get damaged, um, from rattling, but yeah, the the seat post bag is definitely a little tricky to, um, 
to get it to sit right and not sway and not get caught in the rear tire um, and all these things. And actually, Maggie, because um, she has those 29-plus tires, there's not a lot of space between the rear tire and the back of the seat. So yeah. a little less. So I'm, I'm sort of considering looking into because I'm not actually able to get very much stuff in that rear bag with the design that is frequently used. So I'm kind of looking into doing some kind of more like minimal rack to hold up a larger bag for our next trip. Mm. And that, that might be where the challenge comes in because anything that, you know, is stiff is going to be more prone to break, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Interesting. So, Uriel, if, if other people say, man, that sounds so cool. I want to make my own bag. Could they contact you and get more information? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have an Instagram. It's uh, Uriel Eisen, um, I believe, and then also UrielEisen.com. Definitely reach out. Um, it's sort of hard. Actually, there's sort of a lack of good tutorials online for making gear. If you look up like DIY sewing or whatever, you end up with you know, turning a suit jacket into a school bag or something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so less really what this is about. But um, yeah, I'm totally happy to point people in the right direction, find materials. Um, if there's, you know, there are a lot of people who make custom gear out there. Um, so there's definitely worth reaching out to people. Um, and if there's some unique challenge that's uh, isn't found on the market, I'm always excited to try new stuff and make some stuff. So it'd be cool to hear if there are any cool adventures happening that need some specific gear. Yeah, that's fun. And Eisen is spelled E-I-S-E-N. Yes, yes. It's U-R-I-E-L, E-I-S-E-N. So Instagram slash Uriel Eisen. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Well, Maggie, I want to throw this one your direction. Um, back to Ecuador and the Andes. Is this a trip that you would recommend to people? Was it, you know, the the place that you just think, man, everyone needs to do this? If they like kind of the rugged bike packing, high altitude terrain, would you say this is a place to go? Yeah, it was. It was a totally incredible trip, um, and. I think pretty accessible as well. Uh, there were definitely like some things that it would be useful to know going in. Uh, like dogs are, are a little bit difficult to deal with in Ecuador. Um, and I think other countries, uh, just cause everyone kind of has dogs on their farms um, and they'll often like run out and bark at you. Um, we discovered halfway through the trip that if you carry some sort of stick and kind of wave it in the air when they come running at you that often like deters them um but yeah i mean i'm i would definitely go back to ecuador it's also I, we learned a very good place to learn spanish because they have a really flat accent there uh, and mm. speak pretty slowly um so it's definitely a good place to sort of get better at my spanish which is admittedly bad um Mine is pretty bad, too. <laughs> yeah. We did actually, on the dog front, we did have one interesting night. Um, we uh, asked some farmer if we could camp on his land. He said it was no problem. And it looked great. And we started setting, we set everything up and um, got in our tent. And uh, all of the dogs in the valley knew we were there and did not like it. 
um, and actually started coming out of the darkness. I mean, running up, it's not, not only barking, um, you know, they're kind of pretty vicious. Um, and so we were throwing rocks at them, trying to keep them away. And, uh, eventually the farmer actually came down and said, like the, the dogs can't sleep. You have to come sleep inside. So we ended up um, being invited into his house and uh, slept on the dirt floor in there. Wow. And that was, that was a very cool experience, but definitely the dogs were, uh, <laughs> we were, we were not looking forward to sitting up all night. Mm. Yeah. That, ex- that experience of like sort of getting welcomed into somebody's house and uh, they even, they made breakfast in the morning and invited us to have some. Um, and that, that was probably one of the coolest experiences of the trip for me. Uh, and I think it's also like, an illustration of like why it's a it's a great place to visit it's like a lot of people helped us a lot um and people were were really nice and interested in what we were doing thought we were totally nuts but definitely right. interested in us um and yeah it was it was a great place to visit i think partly just because of that because the people were so so nice and helpful to us well here's a here's a question for you on a scale of one to ten one being I've gone on a cruise and everyone's taken care of me. And 10 being, it's the most radical self-supported adventure trip I've ever done and I don't think it's worth it. <laughs> Where would you put mm-hmm. this trip? You know, like a five? I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I feel like that's a tough scale. Um, I guess I think in terms of it being pretty out there, I mean, it was definitely out there, but I enjoyed it, I think, a lot more than I'd enjoy a cruise. Right. Well, the scale's <laughs> unfair, right? It is the Maybe wrong... a little tough. Yeah. Well, let's, let's change the scale then. Let's just say um, moderate adventure to extreme adventure. How about that? Yeah, I'd say it was somewhere in the middle. I mean, we definitely had uh, some pretty uh, rugged stuff, um, but it was definitely doable. Very cool. And scenery-wise, you said it was remarkable, but can you describe it to us so that we can kind of get a feel for it? Uh, so in Ecuador, once you get into the high altitude, it's it's what you call paramo, which is these high altitude grasslands, um, and you can basically, especially in the in the national park around Cotopaxi, you can just look out like through these massive valleys, um, and then the hills just like rise on either side, and they look like hills, and then you get up to them and you discover that they're actually going straight up at like. A, a 50 or 60 degree angle. Mm, uh, wow. Um, and across sort of the plains, you can see mist and clouds. And as the weather changes, you can just see these clouds racing across this vast landscape toward you. Uh, and the weather shifts and changes very rapidly. Um, but I think just like the vastness of that landscape and how small you feel inside of it is, is a very cool experience. Yeah, that's neat. And you mentioned the volcanoes. Um, I've heard that they can be just beautiful. Yeah. Uh, Cotopaxi was, was gorgeous for the amount of time that we could see it. Again, the weather changed so fast that every so often we'd be like, look, it's the mountain. (laughs) And then we'd be gone again uh, a few minutes later. Uh, But yeah, the, the mountain itself was stunning. Yeah, I mean, we we're up in in the uh, sorry, we we're we we're up in the Andes already in these huge mountains, and then and then you see Cotopaxi, and it dwarfs everything around it. It's pretty remarkable. Neat. 
Well, how about the biggest surprise on the trip? I'll let each of you answer this question. Maggie, what was the biggest surprise? Um, I may just, th I may need to think about it for a second. Ariel, do you have an answer? Um, well, I, a couple, I, I would say maybe the biggest sort of logistical surprise besides when we landed at the airport and discovered we had told the ride to arrive a day later. Uh, <laughs> but besides that, more of a continuing surprise. We had sort of planned around, we have uh, dynamos, so they're generators in the front hub of the bike um, to run lights. Um, and we decided to also pull USB power off of them to charge battery packs to run our navigation and our water purification mm. um, in the hopes that the big issue with mountain biking with dynamos is just that you're often going at such low speeds that it's not enough to capture enough energy. Right. Um, and uh, but we thought we would be able to charge these batteries, especially over a number of days. But um, three days up into Cotopaxi, um, actually the night it snowed, uh, we were running out. We the water the water purifier ran out of batteries. We were using a SteriPen, um, and we went and switched the batteries, and it just turned out that they it did nothing. Um, so we had no, luckily, you know, good practice is carrying another method of, of purifying water. So we had chlorine tablets, but those take four, four to six hours. So we ended up just uh, setting a bunch of bottles to sit there overnight and we were able to get batteries the next day. But that sort of was a big surprise <laughs> that all of our planning um, around, you know, we'll, we'll carry these many batteries and these two chargers and we should be able to keep up with our use. And that turned out to be not, not the case. Do you think that photovoltaics would have worked better? I think photovoltaics might have worked better. It was pretty cloudy, but I think we were definitely getting some UV. Um, we burnt our lips aggressively because we forgot chapstick with uh, oh. the UV block. Uh, so we ended up buying that too. But um, yeah, so photovoltaics might have worked better. Um, definitely maybe look into that for a next trip or just carry a spare because we went through towns every now and then you can, and you can buy batteries. So that's what we ended up doing. Yeah. To give you some idea, our average speed was like five to six miles an hour pretty much the whole time. <laughs> and we discovered uh, the batteries wouldn't start charging until about eight miles an hour. Mm. So you're pretty much below the charging speed the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. So I, it, photovoltaics are cool if the sun is out and they, you know, there's enough there. But if you're, if you're in dark, rainy conditions, then I, I don't know what would be better. Yeah, yeah. Kind of I'd probably just go with um, buying buying batteries um, and just going about it that way. Yeah, yeah, we didn't go through too many batteries. The SteriPen lasts for a while on one set. My GPS uh, lasts for probably three, even four days on one set of AA batteries. Yeah. Um, so we didn't need a ton of batteries. And we did stop at some hostels and get a chance to charge. Um, or at restaurants, we'd plug in. But um, yeah. yeah, that was definitely mm. interesting. Yeah. So Maggie, the... what was surprising yeah. for you? Did you come up with something? Uh, yeah. Well, I sort of remembered, I think, so we, we went to Ecuador and planned to buy most of the food for the trip there. Um, and it was a little bit hard to find certain kinds of food that we wanted. Uh, anything that's locally produced in Ecuador is 
is very cheap and super easy to buy. But anything that comes from overseas is only sold in like specific stores in cities, uh, particularly couscous, which is like a great camping food because it requires very little cooking. Uh, and we discovered that at altitude, since the boiling temperature is so low, it takes an incredible amount of time to cook food. Mm -hmm. uh, particularly like rice and lentils we'd planned to make a number <laughs> of days. Uh, and the first night, I think it took like an hour or something to cook the lentils and they still weren't particularly cooked. Right. The next day, we soaked them the whole day in water in the water bottle while we were riding uh, and then tried to cook them and it still took like 40 minutes for them to cook. Uh, so that was, that was definitely educational. Yeah. <laughs> Discovering that cooking yeah. took so long. So we ended up um, getting a lot of noodles, I guess. Where'd we buy? Yeah, we, we got some pasta. Uh, oatmeal cooks pretty fast. They definitely made oatmeal. Um, and we, we also Cans ate. Tuna. Yeah, a lot of tuna. We, and sardines. Uh, and we ate a good amount of food in towns as well. Because uh, food is, is very cheap to buy. You can get almuerzos, which are lunches, um, which is sort of the biggest meal of the day in Ecuador for $2.53 for a soup and rice with chicken. So we often did that whenever we were going through towns. Oh, that's very fun. I always love eating the local foods no matter where I travel because that's part of the experience too. Yeah, definitely. Wow, that's neat. Well, you know what? The clock is goddess, and it sounds like a remarkable trip, but we could probably spend a lot more time on it if we had more time. How about each of you just share with us maybe uh, one of your favorite memories from the trip, and then we'll wrap it up. Man, favorite. Um, I guess a highlight for me was, uh, I mean, there were many, but uh, if I had to pick one, I think um, pushing up that mountain pass and then getting to roll down the other side and the sun came out and we got to dry our clothes. That was pretty glorious. I think that was definitely a highlight. Mm. What about yeah, you, I'd say, I'd say, I mean, that, that was huge. Like getting to the top of that pass was amazing. Um, and then I'd say, I think some of the, some of the coolest things were, we're getting to like see the culture in Ecuador. Uh, we went to, Zumbawa, which is a, a town that has one of the biggest markets in Ecuador on market day, which is Wednesday, uh, and got to walk around the market and like see all these kinds of fruit that we'd never seen before. Um, and all of the, the ladies that are dressed up in sort of traditional garments um, and everybody's like very dressed up to like go out and there's all sorts of wares on display that are all totally different than what you're used to seeing. Um, and that was, that was just so cool. Like getting to go somewhere that so few people who are not from there get to really see and experience was very cool. That's neat. So would you recommend this kind of adventure travel to others? Do you think it is worth the effort? Undoubtedly. It's, it's awesome. We're planning on the next one. We don't know where we're going, but yeah, it's, it's great. It's a great speed to see a country at, um, if you get off off the hard terrain and onto roads, you can really cover a lot more distance if that's what you want to do. Um, South America is a great spot to travel by bike because when you don't feel like biking anymore, you can put your uh, your bike on a bus and there are buses everywhere. 
Um, and unlike in the U.S., uh, it's really easy to just put your bike below the bus. There aren't tons of extra charges, and I think they charge us like a that. dollar. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, was, it was great. So it makes it easy to build. Just stuff the bike under there and climb on board, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, I think we would have been, I think, a little bit more clever about shipping our bikes because we both ended up paying a, a bike rate to ship them. But I know that there are ways to pack them down a little bit smaller and get them into a uh, standard checked bag. Mm. Um, so that definitely is something that we'll look into next time. But yeah, it's it's a totally unique and awesome experience. And you get to see so many things and small towns and people that you would never be able to permeate enough into the country to see otherwise no i love it i love it well that's what adventure travel is all about and i think it's so cool that the two of you did this i love your approach and it sounds like an experience you'll remember for the rest of your lives isn't that what this is about yeah absolutely absolutely thanks so much for taking the time to uh, share it with us but before you go one more time how can people get in touch with you two if they want more information about what you're up to yeah Uh, well, I have, so, my email is uh, mgkburke, uh, which is B-U-R-K-E, at gmail.com. And I'm happy to provide information, especially about, like, planning routes and stuff like that uh, and finding information about where to go. And I can also convince you that it's not so hard to do as it seems from the <laughs> outset. Yeah, and if uh, people want to contact me, again, um, Instagram is good. Um Instagram slash Uriel Eisen, U-R-I-E-L-E-I-S-E-N. Um, also on my website, urieleisen.com. Uh, you can reach me there. There's a contact page. It goes right to me. Um, so, yeah, definitely reach out if I can help in any way, finding um, materials for making gear or whatever it may be. I'd definitely get in touch. Well, very cool. Thanks so much, you guys. I really appreciate the time today. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Oh, you bet. And for all of our listeners out there, until the next show, make sure that you do get out there and also have some fun. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast link is in the show notes and also if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure so if you know someone please reach out email us at info at adventure sports and until then get out there and have some fun